What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens, but trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hi, my name's Kareem Tapsh. And I am Joey Dowd. If you've been listening to us this far, you've been hearing these true crime stories from South Florida, each one feeling crazier than the last. But uh, this episode, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to revisit some of the stories and what made it to the cutting room floor and not in the episode. But first, we'd love to tell you a little bit about us. Yeah, uh, I am Joey Dowd. I am a documentary producer, filmmaker from Miami. I have collaborated with Kareem on a few projects. Yeah, I mean, every every film that I have ever made thus far, you have uh, somehow been involved. Kareem has wrote me in to his documentary filmmaking career. But then the most infamous one that we did together was a film called Dolphin Lover, about a man who had a love relationship with a dolphin. I, I like to point out it was a romantic and sexual relationship and with, sexual a relationship with dolphin. a captive dolphin. Because yes. um, we, we keep it classy. That is for a weird Florida series, not a Florida true crime series. <laughs> that's, that's different kind of show. Different kind of show. Maybe coming soon. Yeah, so I'm also a documentary filmmaker. I am uh, born and raised in Miami. You may have seen some of my films. My first feature doc was called The Last Resort about 1970s Miami Beach when it was the largest enclave of Jewish retirees in the country. And more recently, Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado about the legendary Latino astrologer extraordinaire Walter Mercado, which is on Netflix. And this is a little different. Yeah, I mean, we're both from Miami, we're both from South Florida. A lot of these stories we either grew up hearing about, knowing about, and it's just been a lot of fun to dig in and get a closer look at what some of the more infamous crimes that happened in South Florida, take a bigger, a closer look at what happened to them. And that's sort of what this episode is for this series. Uh, you know, just there's a lot of interesting little tidbits and things that just don't fit into a 30 to 40 minute episode but are still really interesting to share and talk about and that we would love to share with you and kind of just play back some some extra clips uh, that were left on the cutting room floor, even though everything's digital now and there is no cutting room floor anymore. And uh, yeah, and just all kind of talk about what our thoughts are hearing about these uh, stories. You're going to hear stumble. You're going to hear step over each other. Unlike all of our other episodes, which are actually very finely scripted and we try not to screw it up too badly. This is a little bit off the cuff, so uh, bear with us and we hope you enjoy. 
we want to start our short trip down memory lane, i.e. a few episodes ago, with the cocaine godmother Griselda Blanco. So many of you have probably heard of Griselda previously. She was known as the godmother, La Madrina, kind of a legendary uh, pop culture figure at this point. There's been a slew of movies uh, and documentaries made about her. And upcoming stuff coming out about her. Yeah, actually, exactly. Uh, in fact, in uh, I think later this year, there's going to be a limited series on Netflix starring Sofia Vergara as the Godmother, which, by the way, if you've ever seen a picture of the Godmother and a picture of Sofia Vergara. Um, <laughs> polar opposites. Polar, polar <laughs> opposites. But, you know, she's a good actress. She, she, I'm excited to see that one. I haven't seen any of the other uh, mini, whatever, there was a, what was a Lifetime miniseries or something. Yeah, like uh, Captain Zeta Jones plays uh, Griselda Blanco for a Lifetime movie. Uh, there's a really uh, uh, funny version of, uh, what's it called, Drunk History, where Maya Rudolph plays the Griselda Blanco. It's, it's, worth a, it's worth a visit. But I think most people probably first heard of Griselda Blanco uh, thanks to the documentaries of uh, Raconteur and particularly filmmaker Billy Corbin, who we spoke to for the episode. This was the introduction uh, to her and to our world in his hugely popular documentary film, Cocaine Cowboys, uh, which he followed up with Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustlin' for the Godmother, which really centered on Griselda and her criminal empire. Yeah, so this first, uh, so this first clip, this, this story is great. It, it just didn't fit in the episode, uh, but it was just one of these other, like, crazy little tidbit stories of uh, stuff Griselda tried to do. Uh, so let's play the clip first, and I don't really, it doesn't really need much setup, so let's play the clip first, and, and then we'll, we'll dive into it. In 1976, for the bicentennial of the United States of America, uh, nations all over the world were sending tall ships to Bermuda to have a race into New York Harbor with these beautiful ships representing all the nations of the world to say happy birthday, happy 200th birthday, uh, uh, Estados Unidos. And the tall ship Gloria, which was the ship that uh, Colombia had sent to the United States, was docking in Miami for several events and then was going to go to Bermuda for this uh, this regatta into New York Harbor for the bicentennial. And uh, <laughs> the captain uh, discovers of this Colombian tall ship Gloria discovers six kilos of cocaine that uh, Griselda allegedly was trying to smuggle into the United States uh, under the cover of this um, of this bicentennial celebration. Uh, and of course, gets busted. Uh, she doesn't get busted, but the cocaine, the shipment, the load uh, gets busted uh, during a layover, if you will, a stopover in Miami. I mean, I love this story. Uh, first of all, what better way to say happy birthday to anyone than to send six kilos of cocaine to them? I mean, Griselda's my kind of friend. But I, I just love the brazenness of it, where it's like, yes, of course, it's going to be this is a huge publicity event. All eyes are going to be on these boats uh, that are coming in to celebrate the American bicentennial. And she still has the brazenness enough to smuggle six kilos. Now, admittedly, when uh, six kilos is not a lot. And it's especially not a lot compared to what she would later smuggle just a few years later and throughout her career. Uh, but yeah, just, I mean, the fact that, and I, I believe these were the ships that are, tall ships are like the sailboat, like big sailboats. Like, right, yeah. Like that looked like something from the 1800s. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it kind of makes sense, but it's like the theory of like hiding in plain sight, right? Like, I mean, 
who's going to be crazy enough to smuggle cocaine in this giant ship coming into a harbor and going to New York? Uh, Griselda Blanco was. Uh, and uh, it sounds like, you know, she almost got away with it if somebody hadn't stumbled upon this uh, six kilos. I mean, you know, it also makes the, brings up the fact it's the six kilos that were found. So how much was never found in either this boat or other crazy attempts or other crazy schemes that she probably had that no one detected? Yeah, you know, the other thing about this is that, I mean, it's it's such a a funny story, but it's actually really telling of Griselda. Like, if you think back to the episode, um, so much of the crimes that she committed and the way that she ordered hits were in the most brazen way possible. Like, having the guy, like, bayoneted at the actual airport, you know, it was like, she. it was like, go big or go home, and Griselda always went big. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other interesting thing, too, uh, this in the episode, we talked about how she was sort of one of the pioneers in uh, pooling together resources and uh, being able to kind of consolidate the drug manufacturers in Colombia and kind of building this really multinational distribution empire in how drugs were distributed, where before they were kind of just smuggled in piecemeal and like small little shipments on people. Um, and, and so we covered that in the story, but the interesting thing I, I saw when I was doing some more research uh, before this episode was the DEA and the DA document, they said that that was actually, that innovation was what led to the creation of what we now call cartels. And it was the work that, well, work, quote, work that she did and the innovation she did and in how drugs are smuggled, like was the pioneer of the modern cartel. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, you always kind of, uh, it feels a little icky to say you have to respect Rizaldo Blanco, considering, you know, the slew of vicious, uh, gruesome murders that she's responsible for. But uh, there is something about, like, how innovative and brazen she was. I think, you know, Billy Corbin told us in our interviews, like, if if you took out the fact that this was an illicit drug business, you have to be just impressed by the sheer... Um, network that she was able to create and systems that she was able to create in 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 what was a you know a multi-billion dollar empire uh i mean that's not i don't think don't i don't even think don't take out the fact just because like like she's running a multinational like huge empire and it's illegal so not only is it the complexities of just like running a huge business but also running a huge business with every authority chasing you down and trying to like arrest you or kill you or like, and also, yeah, you, you have the police chasing you down and then you have your competitors who are, it's not like, Oh, we're competing with you on price and we're going to put you out of business. It's like, Oh, we're competing with you because we want to murder you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's really kind of astounding when you, you take it. Yeah. An amazing skill. And you also wonder too, it's like, well, what if you put that skill to something more productive than drugs and murder? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, we have another clip that didn't make it into the episode. Uh, uh, again, this is Billy Corbin with another anecdote around uh, Griselda Blanco and 1980s cocaine. There's a lot of tribalism in Miami and a lot of tribalism in these stories. Yeah, you had Anglos versus Cubans versus Colombians versus Haitians versus Jamaicans versus, you know. Um, but then there was also a lot of internal um, strife as well. And you had beef that would go back to Colombia, that would spill over into the streets of Miami, where there would be a series of, of violent acts, of kidnappings, retaliation, you know, mur- murders on top of murders on top of murders. It got so confusing that 
uh, Metro Dade homicide detective Al Singleton literally drew a map of the homicides so that they could try to make sense and understand how all of these murders were interconnected, who was behind them, what the motives were, um, how one killing led into the next. The problem was is that they had a lot of what they called wandos. They would show up on a scene where there would be an unidentified uh, Latin male filled with usually multiple gunshot wounds. I will tell you that uh, in, the in the early 1980s, 25% of all of the bodies in the morgue had wounds from automatic gunfire in them, 25% of the bodies. There were so many bodies piling up at the time that uh, the medical examiner had to go to Burger King, whose corporate headquarters was here in Miami, and borrow a refrigerated Burger King meat truck to store the dead bodies. Um, and Griselda, as legend has it, was responsible for a lot of those. There was not one, but two homicides in, the, in, in as many months, consecutive months, that uh, took place on soccer fields that the homicide detectives nicknamed Pele 1 and Pele 2. Um, if you don't have a sense of humor in the homicide business, you'll very quickly burn out or go insane. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together, and that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr., and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate, because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the My Cultura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
<laughs> crazy stories. I mean, just every time I hear it, all I can think of is like, shit, that's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, the other reason I kind of pulled this clip too was it's interesting because this definitely paints a very, now the 80s were before my time. They were not before mine. Yes, I know. Thank you. Thank you. But growing up, I mean, I feel like I never, I, ne- I, I don't remember my parents ever like talking about Miami being a dangerous place or Miami being, uh, or like, or being like a, like a war zone. I mean, was that different for you? Did you have this sense? Like, I feel like I never really learned or knew about this until like I was watching documentaries or got into documentaries and was researching and had more of like a outside view. Okay, there is an asterisk to that because there were. Okay, actually, no, I think about it. there were some, but some things. Oh, the memory like, starting to flood back. Of, well, of I the mean, life of crime you were surrounded by. Is that what's going on? It wasn't life of crime surrounded by it. But I mean, both of my both my parents were Miami Beach police cops at one point in time in history, and it was during. It was never. They never talked about it like as like the drug war part or that it was drug connected. But it, they were like the Miami Beach changed from a quiet, sleepy beach town to rougher and that was when other police officers were getting killed and like police officers hadn't gotten really hadn't gotten killed before and yeah my mom lasted for like three months as a police officer and then left my dad stuck around for i don't know nine years or so um your mom stayed for full your mom stayed in the force but just no longer as a beat cop she was not a cop she retired as a police officer and then came back and worked as a uh civilian like office manager yeah uh, you know, I mean, uh, I was born in 1980, uh, so uh, the early 80s, obviously, I don't have memories of, but, like, uh, the late 80s, I actually do have memories of, and I do remember, like, being in the car with my parents when we would go into different parts of town, and they were very much, like, make sure that the doors are locked uh, at all times, and uh, they were always a little nervous. I do remember. Uh, I do remember just some of the crime. I mean, I I grew up in a part of town. Uh, it's called Carroll City. When I was growing up, it was called Carroll City. It's now called Miami Gardens, uh, which is where I'm very proud to be from, as well as Rick Ross is from. Uh, I'd like to point that out. Me and Rick Ross, very very tight. Um, two peas in a pod. Uh, but it was a it was a tough part of town growing up. But anytime we went into uh, and it's you know it's Carroll City is like half a mile from the Broward borderline. It's like really on the edge of the city. Anytime we went into Miami proper in the late eighties when I was like an early kid, uh, a young kid, I do have these memories of like them being a little nervous. I remember like being at a red light and somebody coming to try to open the car doors like uh, to, to you know rob us or whatever. Um, yeah, check that the doors before like automatic locks. Yeah, so like yeah. to check the yeah. Like, totally, mm. totally. So there is a sense of a memory of like a more dangerous Miami, and you know I would argue that that actually kind of went in through the early '90s. It was still kind of going on, um, and where I have obviously stronger memories and like you know just kind of as I'm coming into like being a teenager and doing more things out on my own. There was definitely a sense of like. Uh, it's not the city's not at the worst it's been, but it's not necessarily the safest place. The other thing about this clip that's really interesting to me um, that we've talked about before is like what Billy talks about the tribalism mm-hmm. of Miami. When we think of Miami, we think of this like very diverse city, right? There's like large swaths of immigrants here. It's uh, it's an immigrant majority city. Mm-hmm. Spanish is the primary language in the city, which just makes it one of the most unique places uh, in the United States. Um, but, you know, people think if you're if you're not Latino, you know, we get kind of painted with a, a broad brush and we think that like Cubans and Colombians and Puerto Ricans and Peruvians are the same things. And 
Yeah, it's a big classification of like, oh, Hispanic, yeah. Right, general Hispanic. And I, I think the same goes for like Caribbean folks, right? Like people are like Haitian and Jamaican and Bahamian um, and Trinidadian, they're all the same things. And like, while we all have like obviously similarities and like some cultural, um, some cultural similarities and bonds, particularly as immigrants, within these immigrant communities, there's huge tribalism and old beefs that, you know, don't get left back in the homeland. They come uh, following you. And that's kind of one of the things that really fascinates me about this quote mm -hmm. is like some of this crazy ass shit that was happening in the streets of Colombia or Mexico or Havana, like those beefs were being settled on the streets of Miami and Miami Beach. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, the people are walking into getting, you know, a, a shootout that might be happening because of some rivalry that took place thousands of miles away in a different country. And now it's getting settled here in the streets of Miami. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. Okay. Let's go back to yet another story, uh, that didn't make it in this episode from Billy. You realize the, the technology of law enforcement and its ability to, to keep up with uh, with fugitives was non-existent. And, and for a while, they knew Griselda was operating in South Florida. And even though they knew that, they still couldn't find her. Uh, so when you look at some of the tactics that her lead enforcer, uh, hitman Jorge Riviayala, employed, I mean, he would just sit at malls for days on end, weeks on end, looking for people. He would scour the obituary section uh, of the newspaper. He would re he would look at the phone, study the phone book. He would take Griselda's sons and they would stake out places and say, point out the guy if you see him. Because it wasn't like they could, you know, look on his Facebook page. Say, oh, say, look, here's a picture. This is the guy we're looking for. You know, photos were hard to come by. Addresses and phone numbers were hard to come by. And all the identification, everything was all on paper. There was no QR codes. There was nothing digital. All the records were on, you know, index cards. When you go to, you know, to prisons or customs or things like that, these were not very sophisticated operations just yet. Everything was just starting to get computerized uh, at that point. So if you if, if you wanted to be on the run at some time in history, uh, without security cameras everywhere, without you know the you know our our phones tracking us everywhere, that was a good time to uh, to be on the run. Yeah, I think this one paints a good picture of just how this will probably what Griselda was able to accomplish really probably was only possible in this moment of time where you kind of have planes, you have uh, transportation is moving at a rate where like you can sm you can smuggle these large quantities of drugs. She can order these hits, but also everything's still relatively analog. There's no digital records. There's no uh, there's no fingerprint tracking. There's none of uh, there's no GPS, cell phone tracking. So it's a lot easier to hide under the radar, lay low, live a life of a drug kingpin while the DEA is chasing you right here in the United States, uh, and come in and out of the country. She did come in and out of the country. She was a master forger of passports, but. That's something that we could detect today. Ah, the good old heydays of being a cocaine smuggler. I mean, it's kind of like this wistful, like, man, back in my days, it was really hard to be a, a drug dealer. Um, but in, in, in some ways, it's true. It was actually easier than you would be uh, today because uh, it was just 
There's more opportunities to kind of, there was a, a bigger radar to hide under. And while I think of all of, you know, this just reminds me of all of the crazy stories of how drugs were smuggled into this, into the country and of how kind of uh, murders are committed. I mean, uh, it was this kind of, you know, wild, wild west. It's just why, you know, the name Cocaine Cowboys uh, came to be associated with it because it, it was kind of like, you know, the, the fights at the OK Corral, except the OK Corral were the streets of Miami and other major cities like it. But, you know, this era also does something interesting is it really kind of shapes Miami's uh, facade uh, image, right? The, 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 the visage that the, the world came to know uh, of Miami really comes out of this, uh, out of the 80s and this Coking Cowboys, true crime era. And if you just think about like all the pop culture that it uh, created, and when you think of uh, of this, I mean, you know, obviously, kind of most famously, there's Scarface, where Al Pacino does the world's worst Cuban accent. But it's a film that remains a classic, you know, 40-some years later. Uh, but think of, like, Miami Vice, The Golden Girls, Empty Nest. There's actually a slew of shows that were ba- shows and movies that were either set or based or shot in Miami of, of this era and immediately following it. Uh, and in its own weird way, it's the kind of the, the brazenness of these crimes that put Miami in the headlines every day that also kind of put us on the map for people to pay attention. And also all of the money. I mean, in the episode, Billy made the great reference of a rise, the rising tide lifts all ships. Uh, and just the, the amount of money that was coming in where if you weren't directly a drug dealer or trading in drugs, you were benefiting from the influx of cash that came from the drug industry as just a regular merchant in in Miami. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there is a a very solid argument to be made about the fact that drugs built Miami. And, uh, you know, some of the politicians who have been more forthright about this, like uh, a former, the late former mayor, Maurice Ferre, uh, while not necessarily embracing uh, the the drug business, certainly recognized that it did uh, flood the local economy with cash and the big building boom that happened in the 80s, which are some of our more iconic buildings. Uh, directly or indirectly, uh, we owe to uh, this most uh, illicit and notorious of crimes. Do drugs fund the uh, dancing lady uh, in the building? <laughs> that's a good. That is a good question. That is one that we will have to tackle in another in another investigative series. Uh, that is all for our Griselda Blanco episode. Thanks again, Billy Corbin, for uh, opening your memory banks and sharing these crazy stories with us. We really, really appreciate it. And go check out Cooking Cowboys, Cooking Cowboys Two, and there's the new Cooking Cowboys. Yeah, Cocaine Cowboys. Um, Los Muchachos. Cocaine Cowboys, Los Muchachos. Actually, I think there's. No, I think was, it has a different that title. That was the working title. But uh, <laughs> there is a series on Netflix directed by Billy Corbin, produced by Alfred Spellman and David Sipkin. Uh, it was actually one of the highest rated series on Netflix when it came out. Uh, so if you want to do a deep dive on Griselda Blanco and kind of her, uh, let's call them associates, uh, we recommend checking out the films and the series on Netflix. All right, so our next episode, we've got killer cult leader Yahweh Ben Yahweh. This one was really fascinating. Also, I mean, it was really fascinating to talk to Khalil, who was a member of the Yahweh cult. Uh, And I'm going to set this up by, first off, when I was working on this, uh, around the time we were recording this episode, the latest season of The Righteous Gemstones 
came out and there was a sub storyline in there where they had their own sub secret group in it called the God Squad and I I would bet money that the God Squad drew inspiration from Yahweh from the Yahweh group and Yahweh bin Yahweh this was a uh, a squad of men who were worked out extremely buff but they also wore these off-white flowy robes and lived a life kind of dedicated to worshiping God but also worshiping the the cult leader all right, so then we got this first clip where uh, Khalil talks about what, what you wore as a Yahweh. So let's play that clip. So the, once we began to go full-time, first we were wearing just robes of any color. The color didn't matter. Red, orange, black, it didn't matter. And then he began to talk about the saints wore white robes. He quotes some scripture. So he said, everybody wear white. So we got rid of the colors and we went to white. Everything was white. Um, the staffs were just like Moses had a staff and Aaron had a staff. It was more of an Israelite, ancient Israelite kind of a accoutrement, a, a part of their of the look. Um, the turbans also that was just part of the whole ancient Israelite look. Um, it wasn't nothing too deep. It was just that's that's how that's how we were supposed to look. Uh, we didn't we didn't want to look like the European Jews and wore the you know yarmulkes or nothing like that. Um, and we wore Star of David's around our neck. And in the beginning, in the early days, we would actually go on Miami Beach and places where the Jews were at, um, just to terrorize them. We would go over there just to walk around, you know, Miami Beach. <laughs> Walking around Miami Beach in the early 80s, you know, was, was pretty much predominantly, you know, Jewish parts of Miami Beach. They would see us and they would be terrified just to look at their face to see black men walking around with turbans and long robes and staffs. I mean, that's an image. That is a very, very distinct image. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, I, I think that, you know... Uh, <laughs> So much here. Uh, you know, I think I talked about in the episode, I have distinct memories of actually seeing uh, some of the Yahweh followers dressed in their uh, in their garb. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of what sticks out is like, you know, it was all white and these were uh, predominantly African-American folks uh, of varying skin tones. But the just the visual juxtaposition uh, of that was very, very striking. Uh, Robes, staff, like a Moses staff, wood, big wooden staff. And a turban. Turban and uh, Star David necklace. And Star of David necklace. Um, uh, what you, we have to... Uh, I, I appreciate uh, Khalil ad- admitting that part of uh, part of uh, what they did was just terrorizing uh, uh, these elderly Jews just by s- scaring them uh, by just being so different and being out there. Uh, he does go on at a different part of his uh, interview to uh, really kind of repent for all of the awful things that he was involved in uh, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, including that. Well, what was interesting with this, too, is right after this clip, I, I don't have the audio in here, but he then said that Yahweh told them to cut it out and to stop to stop going there and stop terrorizing the Jews on South Beach, which I thought was interesting because it's like, well, why do you draw the line there? I, I mean, I, maybe maybe Yahweh or as uh, maybe he was worried about too much attention. Yeah, he probably don't want to call attention to himself. So. Yeah, he's probably like, that's going to draw some heat on me. And if I stay and 
the, just our, our, our area. People ignore us. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing, uh, it's just like this is the 1980s Miami Beach uh, is a, such a changing time for folks. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a predominantly uh, Jewish neighborhood at the time, uh, not just predominantly Jewish, predominantly South Beach, predominantly elderly Jews. So uh, yeah, it's called God's waiting room. So they just have these people sitting out in Loomis Park on their chairs, just chilling, looking at the beach and living life. And then you have the always walking, walking down the street. And, and a whole slew of like cultural changes going on, right? So it's like the 80s, you have a huge uh, influx of uh, immigrants from Cuba with Mario Boatlift and mm-hmm. folks coming in from Haiti. Uh, so different languages, people who look different than they do. And then, a, I mean, and then like the extreme version of that, like, uh, you know, like a group of black men dressed in all white with staffs walking around wearing Stars of David or looking to buy Stars of David. That was actually what took them to South Beach in part was uh, because it was where the jewelry stores mm-hmm. that would have Star of David's were located that they could go buy. Them. Yeah, that was the only place they could buy them from before the Internet. Um, we have another another clip uh, from Khalil that did not make it into the episode. Uh, let's hear it now. He says, well, my name is not Akmoshe, as we've been calling him. My name is Yahshua. It wasn't that he didn't say Yahweh yet. And we knew that Yahshua meant Joshua or Yahshua or Jesus. Hmm. My name is Yahshua, the Messiah. And of course... When he said that, everybody fell out, was crying and catching the Holy Ghost and women screaming and people saying, I knew he was, I knew he was, he says, I am the spirit of truth that's talked about in the book of St. John 16, verse 13, the spirit of truth. And so that was the, that was the first transformation from Akmoshe. Now he's telling us that he's actually somebody in the scripture. He's telling us that he is the, the reincarnation of Jesus. So that, but that only lasted about four or five months. And then we had another sit down one Sunday, same scenario. We all come back and he goes, who am I? Like that. And then he's real quiet in the room. I mean, pin drop quiet. And then one brother, his name was Elijah. He stands up and screams, Yahweh, that's Yahweh right there. And Yahweh Ben Yahweh goes, that's right, brother. And when he says that, the room goes bananas. The same scene, screams, crying, Holy Ghost, the whole nine yards. Everybody is prostrated on the floor, face down. All you hear is crying and sniffling. And then he, and that goes up for like a half hour. He doesn't say anything, he just sits there and allows us to wail and weep for like a half hour. And then he makes everybody get up and sit down. And then he begins to tell us why he's not even Yahshua. He takes us over to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, which asks the question, what is God's name and what is his son's name? If you can tell, question mark. So, yeah, so he tells us that the, the name has been a mystery and now it's being revealed. And he goes on to say things like, I am the only God you're ever going to see. When you say you say Yahweh, you're looking at Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. So it goes from Akmoshe and the 82 it goes to Yahshua, the Messiah. 
And near the end of 82, going to 83, he just comes all the way home and says, he is Yahweh. He says, my full name is Yahweh bin Yahweh. This one was just interesting to just see his evolution, Yahweh as like a cult leader and sort of how he seems to kind of be formulating his narrative to his congregation in real time or semi-real time. This took place over a couple of years, but just how he was like, oh, first I'm Brother Moses, I'm Moshe, And then he's like, ah, oh, I'm the Messiah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm God. I'm, I'm God. Talk about an identity crisis. I mean, it's like, figure it out. I mean, I will say, though, like, for what it's worth, my memory's pretty bad. And sometimes I do remember what my name is. I have not successfully gotten anyone to call me God. Uh, but here's for hoping. Uh, it's, it's, it is, it is really interesting, uh, just how it evolves over a relatively short period. But the other kind of thing that's fascinating to me, and again, it's so great of Khalil to be so, uh, forthright with his memories and it really feels like he's taken us there. It's just how everyone went along with it mm-hmm. in just short, like in just short order. Yeah. Like when you tell me your God, I laugh in your face, but you know, Yahweh tells, or well, Ya'ak Moshe, no, I can't remember what his, um, actual name was. Anyways, we'll just call him Yahweh. That's the point. I That's know. That's all you remember now. <laughs> See, he really <laughs> identified, he really uh, cemented the Yahweh. Um, yeah, but he says, well, first off, I do, I, I, I feel like that guy who was like, what's my name? And then one guy stands up and says, Yahweh, I gotta, I gotta put my money that that, that was a plant. Yeah, I, I would assume so. I mean, it, it yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you listen. The guy Someone everybody... from the congregation being like, Yahweh. And it's like, well, he said it. The, the, he the, said, look, he, he wasn't me. He I said mean, it. look, he gets everybody dressing in white robes with white turbans walking around staff. The guy knows theatrics, all right? Like, very clearly, he knows you need somebody to deliver the line and go with it. And and go with it. Go with it. They did. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to, to, to murdering. I remember at the end, Khalil telling me that you know, if you take Yahweh out of the equation, he feels like a lot of these guys would not have been murderers, that it was that it was this influence of Yahweh that got people to do horrible, crazy things. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cult, right? Was, like, yeah, you could say a lot about cults. Yeah, you, you could say a lot about cults. And, and, you know, one of the things that, one of the kind of the explosive things that uh, Khalil said in his interview um, with us uh, was just about kind of like, the sexual impropriety that was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Phil always comes up with a cult eventually. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so uh, here he talks to us a little bit more about what uh, what the kind of sexual life of uh, a Yahweh follower was when they were living in uh, in in the temple. Um, so let's let's kick it to Khalil. Well, there came a time where. Yahweh bin Yahweh kicked me out of the main temple and had me stand in another building down the street. And my wife and kids stayed in the same building with him. And so if I wanted to have sexual relations with my wife, there was a room, a conjugal room that he had set up. And you with a clipboard on the door, you had to sign in, sign up for what times you want to go and use the room. It was weird. But we never used it because as it turned out there was a reason that I was put out of the main big house and I didn't know that while I was in there but I found out after I left that you know, he, he, he took my wife from me he, my wife was his wife so 
what sticks out to me here, I don't know if you're gonna say the same thing. It's it's um, the conjugal sex room that you had to sign up for. Like that was what finally Khalil was like. That was weird. I feel like a lot of his weird stuff is like written reflection. Looking back at this, he's like, a lot of this stuff's really weird. Looking back at it, that was my impression of his reflection on it. But at the at the in the moment. And I feel like this is the, seems like a, like a cult playbook where you're like, okay, get them all like devoted and uh, obsessed and into you and like believe, true believers. And then when you start doing this stuff like, oh, you know, like, let me sleep with your wife. It's part of the group. It's like, oh, okay. Or it's like, oh, you need to go to this other building because you did something bad. I was like, I guess I did. Uh, okay. And you kind of just go along with it. And then it's like, and it seems like he's saying in the moment it wasn't weird that you know Yahweh's sleeping with his wife or even I, I remember in some of the and I think it's in the episode uh, or some other parts of his interview where you know like they, they, they see it as a like a blessing or they see it as like a positive thing uh, because yeah if you frame yourself as yes I'm God and I'm gonna sleep with you that that would seem like a positive thing if you are you know a true believer uh, I, I mean and also uh, you kind of have to love the analog aspect of this there was a clipboard clip where you wrote your, your name on uh, I think today we call that Tinder and Grinder. like <laughs> you actually just pull your phone out of your pocket and you're like I, I want to sleep with you that's how Tinder works right there's definitely no, how no Grinder works swiping and uh, there's no swiping in Yahweh uh, there's, there's no swiping in Yahweh there's no swiping in Yahweh um, yeah As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and we're reflecting on what matters most. I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of My Cultura Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you get your podcast. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Also, part of the thing that could have played into this was just they were all very... Uh, I can't... I, it seemed like they are very malnourished. Uh, they had very minimal meals. And in this next clip, Khalil kind of talks about how little food they got and also sort of what uh, a racket the, the setup was of any uh, necessities that they needed to get. In the beginning, we ate, you know, we had, we had meat and stuff. But within... Four or five months of us moving in the temple, um, he claimed that someone was complaining about the food. So he cut out all meat, and the diet became seven days a week of beans, rice, bread, and water. One day it's black beans, uh, navy beans, uh, garbanzo beans, uh, black beans, uh, string beans, you know, the different beans, but beans every day with white rice every day, water, and a slice of bread. That was the diet. And that was Monday through Friday. Uh, That's what it was. No breakfast and no lunch. And when I tell you that we we all, there wasn't no fat people in the temple, we all were skinny. And uh, probably about (laughs) seven o'clock that evening, you'd be so hungry. And nobody had no money, so it wasn't, you weren't going off, you didn't have a ride, you didn't have money. Those of us who worked full time for Yahweh, in the beginning, we would get a $5 allowance. $5, and that was to, that was to take that $5 and go to our grocery store and buy toiletries, you know, toilet paper, dealer, whatever you needed. So he gave you money they gave us a $5 allowance only to give it back to them. So yeah, so th- this this racket thing where, hey, you're going to live at the temple, we're going to take all your money, you know, if you work outside, where you, you give all your money to the temple, and then if you need supplies to live, you're going to buy it from the temple with the allowance that we give you, but basically you're giving us the money back that you earned. Yeah, I mean, it was almost like the most brilliant business. Like, uh, we are, you're going to work for us, we're going to give you money, and then we're going to make sure that the only place you could spend the money is with us. Yeah, um, it, yeah, yeah, it's it's really, uh, truly a hell of a story. Uh, and it's, yeah, they're eating beans and rice one meal a day, so yes, everyone's going to be starving and crazy. More likely to believe crazy stuff if you're, like, borderline hungry all the time. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't know. My people have been eating beans and rice every day for years. But, you know, maybe it's not a lot of beans and rice. I don't know. Uh, Thank you, Khalil, for sharing uh, your story. Uh, That is uh, Yahweh Ben Yahweh. And uh, uh, if you haven't heard it, uh, please listen uh, to it. It's available. Next, we're revisiting the Jim Bro Murderers, the Sun Jim Gang this was the story you guys will remember about uh, the kidnappers turn tur- torturers and murderers out of the Sun Jim gang, uh, out of the Sun Jim in Miami Lakes. Um, Jim Bros turned kidnappers, turned torturers and murderers. Yeah, it, it is. 
it really, I feel like almost every time we hear a story, you're like, that's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. This is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. Uh, in part because I keep thinking how stupid these people were and how how far they got away with it before like it all came tumbling down. Uh, and even when it seemed like it was just about to tumble down, they like they still managed to try to pull like the dumbest way of getting out of it. But it, they were dumb, but then they were also so horrific in how and just uh, psychopaths and just how they killed people and how they disposed of the bodies. And it, it just was for someone a group of people so dumb they just where that horror came from is just kind of shocking to me of where the brutality and where the just complete disconnect and ability to uh, torture and brutally murder some people it came from but yeah like you said i mean if they if they kidnapped mark schiller and took all his money and then stopped there they good chance they probably would have gotten away with it yeah, I mean, if it kind of comes down to it, greed and wanting more is uh, ends up being the downfall of so many of the criminals that... And a common theme in Miami. 100%. And a common theme in Miami is like that desire for more and more. In fact, uh, Francisco Alvarado, the journalist who we talked to for this story, uh, has a little bit more to say about that. They were just like, they wanted, you know, like part of it is the fact that they were in Miami, you know, because I think that it's kind of like, uh, how should I put it? It's always in the background. People that come to Miami, like, they, they they get caught up in the fast life real fast. Like, just, you know, going to strip clubs, going to nightclubs, buying bottles, showing off in exotic cars, showing off jewelry. Like, people, you know, get caught up in that lifestyle real quick. And, you know, the only way to maintain it is to live, you know, to make fast money. And, um, and these guys, they basically just, like, they just figured that, you know, well... I think that they thought, well, you know, Schiller's already, like, kind of a scummy dude himself. Yeah, Francisco highlights a really uh, classic Miami stereotype, but a bit of a truism, of that there is a very much of an image of fast cars, fast life. Thanks in part to Michael Bay and his portrayal of Miami in some of his films, uh, which he then later documented this story in Pain and Gain. Totally. I mean, look, I think it's completely obviously unfair to paint any one uh, person or any one place with like very broad strokes. Uh, and certainly Miami is much more complicated and nuanced than that. But having been born, raised and still live here, uh, you can't deny that there is this kind of like whatever it takes. I want it uh, attitude that kind of permeates through the city um, in, in many ways. This this story is probably the extreme version of what that, uh, you know, what that uh, attitude leads to. Uh, but you're 100% right. Michael Bay, who uh, actually lives in Miami, um, uh, really kind of has captured that in his kind of Miami stories. Um, you know, Michael Bay, obviously very famous for movies like Transformer. Um, also, he made maybe one of the quintessential uh, late 90s, early 2000 Miami movies, which were Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2. I have an admission. I've never actually seen them. You've never seen Bad Boys? I've not seen Bad Boys. You know, Joey now lives in Los Angeles, uh, although he's uh, he's likely moving back by the time this is on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk, uh, but, Let's talk uh, we, about my movie. And plans. We, we're not, we're, I think we're not going to let you back into the city until you watch Bad Boys. Um, I think it's, it's a requirement. Uh, uh, so Michael Bay uh, 
hears this story of the Sun Jim gang and says, that shit is crazy. I'm going to make a movie about it. Uh, and he does. And it's called Pain and Gain. It's uh, yeah, it a big movie and it had a huge cast. I mean, you have Mark Wahlberg, you have uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Tony Shalhoub. Uh, and Anthony Mackie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a huge cast. Uh, the funny thing is, like, even with all those casts, it's still kind of like Michael Bay's indie film, like his version <laughs> of an indie like, film. Yeah, it's, my, it's the, the low-key Michael Bay. Right, right. And, and it's funny because the, the setup that they did for the Sun Gym, the exterior location, is right down the street from where you live. Yeah, that's right. It's literally, like, down the block from me. It's actually normally, like, a, an empty building front uh, that they turned into uh, a gym. I think I, I mentioned that in the episode. The other... Funny thing is the warehouse in the movie that they take him to to torture him. It is actually a dry cleaners on Miami Beach, which is nowhere near where the actual location took place. And also it's a dry cleaners that's been there for like 50 years and is like a community staple and uh, nowhere that you would picture someone going to to torture someone. Yeah, it's uh, what's well, a little bit of, the, of movie magic. Uh, we're, we're not only talking about crime son on this episode. We're also, t- you know, bringing you into the, the, the wonderful world of movie magic. Uh, the Sun Jim Gang, this this episode it was a fun one, uh, just to kind of revisit this bonkers story. Uh, thank you, Francisco Alvarado, for sharing uh, it with us. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And that is it for us in this kind of in this bonus episode. Uh, we've uh, we've talked to you about some of our favorite uh, stories from uh, our previous episodes in the season so far. Uh, rest assured that there's much more to come. So keep listening every week as a new episode drops. And uh, one last mention: if you did hear the story of the Causeway Cannibal. The Causeway Cannibal, Rudy Eugene, uh, which is what the media labeled him. And it is a horrific and fascinating and complicated story. It's worth mentioning that Markinson, Rudy Eugene's brother, who we spoke to for the episode, is actually currently working with Haitian-American filmmaker Edson Jean. They are making an independent uh, film on his brother's story. So keep an eye out for that. It will be uh, coming out in the next year or two. And we look forward to, uh, to seeing that story from a personal family perspective. Uh, so yeah, I hope we enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think about this one and all the episodes we've covered so far. Uh, you could reach us on Twitter. I am C47. I am at Kareem Tapsch. That's K-A-R-E-E-M-T-A-B-S-C-H. Or feel free to leave a comment on what your favorite podcast platform is and tell us what you want to hear about, what you like, what you thought, and what you want to hear next. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Paradise Lost, Crime in Miami, where each new episode will bring you a true crime story right from the South Florida headlines. Paradise Lost, Crime in Miami is a production of Sonoro and Trojan Horse in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura Network. Hosted and produced by Kareem Tapsh, Joey Dowd, and Christian Hatar. Edited by Angelina Mosher Salazar. Fact-checking by Evelyn Uribe and Sara Mota. Engineering by Mane Parra, Daniel Padilla, and Fernando Galaviz. Executive produced by Jasmine Romero and Joshua Weinstein for Sonoro, Kareem Tapsch and Alex Fumero for Trojan Horse, and Giselle Bansis and Conal Byrne for iHeart. Listen to Paradise Lost Crime in Miami on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
tengo diabetes. Yo, asma. Estamos, Estamos en riesgo, riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. 19 años o más con afecciones crónicas como asma, diabetes, EPOC o enfermedad cardíaca o tienes 65 años o más, estás en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Aunque te hayas vacunado previamente con otras vacunas contra la neumonía, Prevnar 20 puede ayudar a proveer protección adicional. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones de 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Los adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. Los efectos secundarios incluyen dolor e hinchazón en el área de la inyección, fatiga, dolor de cabeza, dolor muscular y en las coyunturas. Para obtener la información para la prescripción completa, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.